You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 23 of our show, where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, and more. We're recording on Thursday, July 2nd, 2015. Today, we'll be talking about the Apple Music launch, Beats 1 going live, new iPod colors leaking out of Apple, listener questions, a uh, the new Steve Jobs movie trailer, and the iPhone's birthday. It's eight years old this year. And lastly, Apple losing the ebooks appeal. We have with us this week, Apple Insider Managing Editor, Neil Hughes. Hi, Neil. Hey, how's it going? Fantastic. And Associate Editor, Shane Cole. Yo. I'm your host, Contributing Editor, Victor Marks. Let's go ahead and begin. So our first topic is about the Apple Music launch. Neil, can you go ahead and tell me some of your thoughts about the service and what you think it means for Apple? (laughs) It's funny that you asked me first because the first thing I did was disable Apple Music. (laughs) Well, that would be your thought on it. (laughs) Um, Why did you do that? Well, uh, I prefer to own my music. I'm not really into the whole concept of renting. If I ever wanted to leave Apple Music, I wouldn't have the music that I listened to while I was on there. Um, and I'm happy to pay more for music. Uh, I buy a lot of uh, stuff on vinyl, and vinyl these days comes with digital download codes, and then I use those with iTunes Match. They upload to the cloud, and I have it all available, and I own it, and I can listen to it and do whatever I want with it. So Apple Music, I'm sure, appeals to a lot of people um, and has a lot of value to them, but for me personally, it's just not something that fits in with the way that I consume music. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So that's that's cool because I think there are a diverse range of opinions on how music fits into people's lives. Shane, did you try Apple Music? Yes, I did try Apple. I did try Apple Music. Uh, I subscribed. I was a Beat subscriber before. I'm now an Apple Music subscriber. Um, it's a streaming service. I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about it. The real differentiator for me from everything else is what Jimmy Iovine has been carping about for years, which is human curation. I don't have a lot of time uh, in my days, and so I depend on other people, essentially, to make me cool. Um, I don't hear stuff unless somebody else points it out to me all the time. So for me, having actual, for, I mean, for lack of a better term, having actual cool people show me new stuff is valuable and totally worth my money. Okay. I signed up for the trial, but I did so with uh, hesitation, and I did it because I wanted to see what was inside. I wanted to see what was in the catalog. And the big benefit that I derived from it so far has been the ability to make a song available for offline playback. Right. And I, I say that because I used to have the AT&T Unlimited Data Plan, which, as we know, AT&T has been historically trying to find ways to clamp down on. And I switched away from that to a, a limited plan with a large number of gigabytes of data. But even so, I still find that there are months where I butt up against that 6 gig or 7 gig limit. And I want to have the songs available for offline so I'm not constantly streaming them and constantly burning data out of a cellular plan on those same songs. Yeah, I mean, you get that same thing with iTunes Match, but obviously you just don't have access to the huge library of music that you can listen to whenever you want. That's what I like about iTunes Match, and I'm happy to continue subscribing to it just because I can download music and listen to it offline. If I'm getting on an airplane and I want to have something to listen to and I'm not going to have a data connection, great. Or I can just stream it. I can just tap on it and it streams it from the cloud. Um, I have a lot of live bootlegs and stuff like that that I've uploaded that don't get matched, but they're saved in the cloud, and so I have everything accessible there. So... I think Apple's cloud services are really coming together, uh, and this is just something that kind of completes the ecosystem. you got to remember that iTunes sales, now that the iTunes brand is kind of being pushed to the wayside, 
are still dominant and still much bigger than streaming, although streaming is growing and digital downloads are shrinking. But it's still a bigger business than Apple Music or Pandora or anything like that, you know, Spotify. Uh, that may change in the next five years, and I think it probably will, and Apple kind of sees that change coming, and that's why they're doing this. But let's not forget that iTunes and sales of music are still a very big business. Yeah. I moved to streaming instead of downloading or or purchasing and downloading because I got tired of managing an iTunes library. You know, I had multiple computers and multiple hard drives and multiple libraries, and it just became a headache. And it's for the same reason that I haven't signed up for iTunes match and iCloud because I would have to manage those libraries to get them all up into the cloud. Or I, I run into the same problems with actually managing Apple IDs. You know, this whole family sharing thing for the family plan of of iTunes, of Apple Music, it just is is one of those things where it's one more thing to think about and I don't even get on board with it. For me, the killer app of streaming, curation aside, the killer app mm-hmm. of, of a streaming service versus buying stuff is that I probably am not going to like the same thing I like now in four years. Right. So not only do I not have to deal with having the cruft of still having that stuff around, like how many people still have the thong song in their iTunes library, right? And how many people listen to it? (laughs) Oh my God, yo. (laughs) So I'm just saying. But uh, yeah. The thong, the thong, thong, thong. (laughs) So yeah, you, you still have to deal with that. I don't have to worry about spending a dollar or ten dollars on an album that I'm going to hate later on, you know? Because I, right. I could easily spend ten dollars a month, which is the subscription cost, on buying an album. But well, I, I spend well I more than ten dollars a month. I spend well more than ten dollars a month. I mean, you know, if I get a record that costs, you know, twenty dollars, twenty-five dollars or something like that, that's a lot more than an Apple Music subscription. So I totally understand why people would want that. But I I like the experience. Like there's some snobs that'll be like, oh, vinyl has this rich, warm sound that sounds better than digital. No, it doesn't. But it's nice to get this really nice big album art. I like owning physical things, you know, and I don't yeah. want CDs or any of that crap. But I like having uh, vinyl records. I like the experience of going up to the record record player and putting it on and flipping it over. I like the liner notes that come with it and all that stuff, having my hands on it. And that's one area that the pretty much the only area that I think Apple is lacking in that Amazon beats them is Amazon has a feature called auto rip. And so if I buy vinyl from Amazon, I'll get MP3s DRM free from Amazon to download and then I just upload them to iTunes match. It would be nice if Apple had some sort of like download code option for vinyl as well to appeal to nerds like me who like to buy vinyl. That's a, the musical equivalent of DVDs coming with an iTunes copyright. Like exactly. It's a violet yeah. code yeah. thing. Yeah, they don't have that. And, and I've gotten to a point now because I like buying Blu-rays as well. I like having the disc. I don't want to worry about my internet connection. But I'll only buy Blu-rays if it comes with an iTunes code so I can add it to my library in the cloud. Because I actually have a – I ripped. I, uh, I travel a lot now and I don't ha- want to bring all my DVDs with me and I have a ton of them uh, back at home. So I rip them all and put them into a Dropbox account that I, that I pay for every year just to have all digital copies of my movies there. But I don't want to keep doing that. I don't even have a disk drive anymore to rip them, right? And it's a pain in the butt to rip them. So it would be nice if they had a iTunes digital copy equivalent for – uh, vinyl. I think that would really make Apple the perfect music service because right now with Apple Music, iTunes, um, and you know Beats One, which we'll get into in a bit, I think they offer a lot of really great stuff that the competitors don't have. Fair enough. I want to move right to Beats One. So Beats One went live, and there were a few quality issues going right out of the bat. Um, the one that stuck out to me were the station IDs right in the middle of Beck. What did you hear? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they did the station IDs in the first couple of tracks, which was annoying, but that's a radio trope. I mean, I get why they're doing it. They got a lot of complaints for it. You know, I, I don't, whatever. I, I don't, I didn't really care that much as radio. So, um, and they had some dropouts and stuff in the first few hours, but I think that's to be expected with a new product launch, you know, cloud-based, that sort of stuff. There's always going to be hiccups with these things, right? Has there ever been a cloud-based service? Uh, that launched without issues. Like I think Microsoft's the only company that's done it, and that's because nobody's using their stuff. <laughs> I don't. I, I can't recall any cloud-based or web-based service that launched without a hitch. I mean, there's always an influx of traffic to start that knocks things down. So uh, whatever, it wasn't really that big of a deal. I don't think. How do you I, like I, the Apple Music UI? I uh, I like it a lot. It's a, it takes a little bit of getting used to. They changed some things, but it looks sharp, right? Um, the colors now with the album art when you load up and, and the playlist, you can add pictures to your playlist. It's just a very pretty app. It just looks nice. I think it's not at all. Well, I'm going to couch this in saying do it from a design perspective. It's very Apple-like in that they have completely ignored all of their own human interface guidelines. So there's that. <laughs> it looks very pretty, but it sucks to use. From a user yeah. experience perspective, it's horribly organized. There's menus on menus, and I don't mean actual identified menus. I'm using this in navigational higher in a context of navigational hierarchy. There are menus on menus on menus on menus, and to discover any number of the cool features, it takes forever. Like they have Beats had this sentence, right? I'm doing this with these people. Play me some music. Apple Music has a similar feature, but they have a list of activities. Right, one of my favorite of which obviously is getting it on. There are a bunch of playlists <laughs> under the Apple Music activity, getting it on. But to get to that, you go into the new section, which is supposed to have all of the new music, and scroll down until you see this forever, basically, until you see uh, an activities picture, and then you tap on that, and then you're in the activities section. Why is that there? Why is it buried? Why? There are, so, there are too many why questions for me to possibly ask in the time we have for this podcast. Yeah. And I think the three dots on the right of everything is just really ugly. <laughs> like you, just, you scroll down and it's just dot, 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 dot on everything in the app. And it's like, what is this? Yeah, and the worst violation for me was, was when you tap on one of those dots and you get a, a menu that pops up from the bottom of the screen. And, and traditionally, you're supposed to limit those menus to three or four uh, rows, right? You're not right. supposed to do that. Eight or nine freaking rows of That's options. That's what I was just going to say. God, my mind wants to bleed at that. Yeah. And another thing that annoys me is when you open up my music, it uh, used to be, have on the right side the full uh, uh, alphabet so you could scroll quickly. You have to start scrolling, and then that pulls up the alphabet once you get down to the music. Just little tweaks like that that I think they'll work out in time. But I think it's a step in the right direction. I really like the mini player. Um, it just looks nice when you, when you load up uh, individual artists and albums, the colors that match. Um, it just it looks really sharp. Yeah, I get the I get the reason they've done what they've done with the music app, but I wish that they would split it off into two apps again. To be honest, I think you right. would get a lot more play if you had My Music as its own app and then Apple Music as a separate app. I agree. So, what about these beats and and featuring Beats One and featuring celebrity shows like Elton John, Farrell, and Dre? Farrell, I mean Pharrell, <laughs> Pharrell, Farrell. You know. <laughs> 
whatever. It just makes me happy to listen. to Thanks, Grandpa. Um, you know, honestly, um, it beats one. I didn't really have high hopes for it. It started out. They kick things off with a little known song by a band out of Manchester called Spring King. Then they follow it up with, you know, a big summer hit from Beck, a real catchy tune. And then Jamie XX. And like those first three right off the bat kind of set the tone for me for this station, which I thought was really cool, which is. Uh, it's not going to be your typical top 40 radio. They're not going to play Lady Gaga every five minutes. Not that there's anything wrong with Lady Gaga, but uh, it really seems like it's about music discovery. It's about people that uh, want to introduce you to new music and have you hear some new things. And they'll sprinkle in some hits and some classics along the way. And so I've tuned in and out over the first couple of days, and there was some stuff I absolutely hated, and there was some stuff I absolutely loved. But most importantly, there was stuff that I hadn't heard before, and I think that's really great. I think that ties into what I said before about the value of curation is that I'm depending on, I'm, I'm having cool people, you know, show me stuff. Right. And that's totally worth, for me, totally worth paying for. Yeah, like the celebrity thing, you know, they had St. Vincent on the first night. I actually just saw St. Vincent last weekend and she's really great and I love her. And so to hear her host a show where she's giving her taste in music and what she, you know, wants uh, people to listen to, what inspires her, that's great. I mean, I think that's really cool. We also saw related to music, that Apple's leaked new iPod colors. We've got a new darker blue, a hot pink, and gold shades for iPod Touch, Nano, and Shuffle. And this was leaked via iTunes 12.2, the new iTunes for Mac OS X. What's interesting about this? Uh, gold. <laughs> yeah, Apple's obsession with gold. I was, I was going to say... I guess it's China's obsession with gold. Say, say what? Say it again, Shane. Uh, so that was going to say they're going back in time. Because hot pink was... The fat Nano came in hot pink, didn't it? And I think a couple others. <laughs> Rest in peace, fat Nano. It's the uh, the third generation Nano. <laughs> oh my god, that thing was awful. Yeah, yeah, back when they were still redesigning the Nano once a year. I still love the clip-on Nano. That thing was awesome. Yeah, that was nice. Uh, yeah, the I mean, fourth the, gen Nano, the chewing gum stick. No, 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 no. The the clip-on one, the the touchscreen, uh, the tiny little touchscreen. Oh, the, sixth gen. Yeah. Yeah, sixth gen. That thing was awesome. I was using it up until uh, a few months ago, and then I dropped it, and the screen shattered, and I've now just replaced it with my Apple Watch. But yeah, I, I love that thing. That thing was great. I still have a couple of those. But how many iPods are they selling? Does does this make sense to release a new shuffle, a new nano, and a touch? Well, they stopped reporting how many iPods they're selling because the numbers are getting so low, it's almost embarrassing. But it's almost it's also kind of a chicken and egg scenario. The sales are dropping because people are less interested, but also they're dropping because Apple's not updating the hardware. If you buy an iPod touch now, it's running a processor from like an iPhone 4S or something crazy like that. So, I mean, I can't imagine what iOS 9 runs like on that or how well it works. Um, you know, the leaked pictures show new, new colors. Will they upgrade the processor? That's the million-dollar question uh, at this point. Don't really know. Uh, you know, our sources uh, told us earlier this year that the iPod was going to get an update, and at the time a lot of people thought we were that, that it was crazy. Like, why would they even bother updating the iPod? But here it comes. You know, it's, it's welcome. Uh, it'll be better if they upgrade the hardware, but I wouldn't hold my breath for uh, any upgraded internals. The real question for me is not why are they upgrading the iPod Touch. It's why are we getting new shuffles and nanos, particularly the nano. Because that seems to me to be sitting right now in a sort of uncanny valley of unnecessariness. The shuffle I get, right, people, I, I know a ton of people who still work out with their shuffle rather than strapping their iPhone to their arm. And the touch, obviously, uh, is an iPhone without the phone, which is hugely valuable to mostly parents, but also people like me, developers, right? But the, the Nano, I just don't understand why it's still around. 
I actually really like the Nano, you know, the integrated uh, Bluetooth and the size of it, the form factor and all that. But you're right. I mean, at that point, you might as well put your money toward uh, getting an iPhone or getting an iPod Touch or even getting an Apple Watch. Yeah, it's like who who is buying a Nano to use the Nano every day, right? Because we know who's buying shovels and we know who's buying iPods, iPod Touches, iPods Touch. But who is buying a Nano and using the Nano every day? That's what I want. I mean, is it is it teenagers? Seriously, is it like middle school and high schoolers who can't have their phones in class? Is that the market <laughs> or what? You know, there were some people upset in the comments too. That the new iPod Touch doesn't have Touch ID, which presumably means it won't have Apple Pay. But I mean, realistically, was that ever going to happen? Did anybody really think that they were going to do that for the iPod Touch? I, I don't really see why they would bother. Mm-hmm. This is same, like the same use would be as if the uh, for shopping online, like you would with the iPad third generation Mini. But how many people do that from a Touch versus doing that from an iPad? Yeah, I, I just it, 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 they're going to they want to keep this thing as cheap as possible. They want to keep the cost down and the margins up. And they're not going to put in a Touch ID sensor on it. There's no incentive for them to do it. Why would they do that? But what's interesting is because the NFC element and secure element in the Apple Watch are separate from the phone, you have to reload your credit card to get it yeah. on the Apple Watch again. And that's why you can do it uh, with an iPhone 5 and iPhone 5S, even though they don't have Apple Pay built into them, is because the Apple Pay functionality actually comes with the watch itself. Right. So what I was going to say is I wonder how much of that is an, is an attempt to, I don't know that this is actually a huge thing, but it's always seemed to me that a great use of an iPod Touch, and I tried this for a while, is as a mobile phone without the cell connection, especially right. as Wi-Fi gets more ubiquitous. I could totally see people... FaceTime audio kind of thing? Yeah, FaceTime audio. I mean, even Skype. I could totally see people moving away from an expensive uh, cell phone plan. Get a Google Voice number and use Google Hangouts to make calls too. Yeah, exactly. So I wonder make how much, receive traditional phone calls. So I wonder how much of that is a defense against a move like that. How much removing Apple Pay and Touch ID or withholding it actually from an iPod Touch is a defense against that kind of change? If you look a few years ago when they made the iPod Touch really thin, um, it was easy to look at that and say, oh, this is where they want the iPhone to go. And then here we are with the iPhone 6, right? And the camera protrudes. And the edges are rounded off, and it came true. And so it's it, it's interesting that now that they've kind of dropped interest in the iPod Touch and they're not redesigning it anymore, it used to be where they did the things that they couldn't yet do with the iPhone, and now it's just kind of a forgotten product. Well, there have been a few products like that where they've eventually they've come out and said, yeah, we tested this or this other innovation in this prior product, right? Right. Well, I mean, you see that with the, the new MacBook, right? That's an aspirational product. I think in many ways, the iPod Touch of three, four years ago when they made it so thin was an aspirational product for the iPhone. Yeah. And now they're there and they don't feel a need to even innovate with the iPod Touch anymore. Wasn't there one of the one of the iPods, maybe the Nano was, uh, Steve Jobs said that it was a test bed for the unibody construction when they switched to unibody for the MacBooks. Hmm. Very cool. Well, at this time, I need to announce our sponsor today. So let me start by just asking, because I want to make this a little interactive. Neil, you sleep at night, yes? Sometimes. You sleep on a bed? Yes. You have you have a mattress, you sleep on a futon, you sleep on the floor, what? I have a mattress. How did you shop for that thing? Uh, <laughs> my wife did. So you, you seeded the whole decision-making process and just got yes. something you sleep on? Yes. Okay. Shane, what do you sleep? Do, do you sleep at all, actually? Because um, it is midnight for you. Occasionally. But uh, the mattress I sleep on now came with my apartment. Ooh. 
Was it new, or is it some like used mattress that came with your apartment? It, it's new. My apartment came furnished, but the mattress is new. Although I will tell you, when I used to live in the states, we went shopping for a mattress, and I literally walked into like rooms to go beds or something, and said, "I want the most expensive mattress here," and that's how I shopped. <laughs> hey, it worked awesome. out. It could have gone bad. Yeah, it, it worked out. It worked out. Well, today's sponsor is Casper Mattresses. They are an obsessively engineered American-made mattress at a fair price. And you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash insider and using the code insider. That's for all of our listeners. And their proposition is this. You spend about a third of your life sleeping. So they want to make sure that you do it on a good mattress. They're bringing together two technologies to try and make you sleep better and, and actually have a better day because when you get a good night's rest, you wake up feeling better. So they're using latex foam and memory foam. They've got just the right sink and just the right bounce so that no matter how you sleep, you're not sinking into the thing, you're not hot at night, you're not tossing and turning. It's really just meant to be comfy. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you, and you can try for 100 days. If you're not happy, they'll pick it back up. So at the store, like you did, you get a minute to try on the mattresses, right? You get to bounce around for a few minutes. You lie down on one. You feel incredibly awkward lying down in the store. With Casper, you get to sleep on it for 100 nights. So they sell a $500 twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Comparing that to the industry averages, what you'd pay for some of the competitors, that's really reasonably priced. So get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash insider and using code insider. Terms and conditions may apply. So we had some listener questions, right? And, and we're just going to run through these. One listener asked, why does CarPlay not show Apple Music properly? Have Apple fallen down on the job here? And, and what they were getting at is that in CarPlay, I can get it to show songs that I have said make available for offline, and those will list. But trying to list the other songs, trying to see things added to a playlist, it's just it's inconceivable. It doesn't work. I know you guys don't have CarPlay, so that's my answer, is that I think Apple, as, as you guys were talking about with the UI in Apple Music, that lack of consistency and lack of following the human interface guidelines extends to the CarPlay interface where they sort of fell off the map and didn't even pay attention to it. Do as I say, not as I do. Hey, they issue the design awards. They can issue themselves one if they like. <laughs> Apple sweeps its own design awards. What does it mean? Here's a second listener question. What does it mean when Siri says, I can't take requests right now? It means too many people are listening to Beats 1. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, the alternate message to that is is uh, the internet connection is not working or too many requests are going to Siri at the data center. And even if the internet works, it's it's pretty much there's not a whole lot to do about it. Basically, Siri can't find Apple. She can't find home. Yeah. Siri but can't the phone home. Is, is that they don't tell you. They don't tell you, you know, check your internet connection. Do you have Wi-Fi or check your there, – there's nothing, no advice given to the user to troubleshoot this, right? Yeah, it's kind of cryptic, right? You know, they're trying to make it personal. I, I'm sorry, I can't take requests tonight now. Yeah. I'm your personal assistant. I've gone for coffee. See ya. But I'm sorry, David, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, that got creepy fast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a cryptic message, and that led to that question. Um, do we know, here's another question, do we know, are some artists only available in some countries, or are all of the artists in Apple Music available in all the countries? That is an excellent question that I don't think any of us know the answer to. 
I, so, have no, I, I have no idea. I would assume that the same artists are available everywhere, but I have no idea. I don't know what the licensing restrictions are there. I, I know that movie licensing is very much region-dependent around the world and that movies don't get passed around the world for licensing like that. Music is a separate thing, and I'm not positive, but I, I just don't know. They do have a... Apple does have a regional availability uh, help guide for Apple Music, but it doesn't break out things like artists. It only breaks out different services. Uh, for example, which countries Beats 1 is available in, which one's streaming is available in, etc. Okay. So the answer is, not only do we not know, it's really, really hard to know. The last listener question that I have before me for this episode is, can we talk a little bit about the iCloud Music Library issue? where some files were being deleted and some, some files were being renamed. Well, I mean, this just goes back to what I was talking about with cloud launches and how hard they are to do, right? Server overload, things start glitching out, things start going crazy. Apple did a bunch of changes behind the scenes. They're getting all kinds of new people accessing iCloud services. They weren't accessing them before, so problems happen. That's just what it is. Yeah, but Apple doesn't really learn from their own history. This is not the first time that a music service has overwritten user files. <laughs> you know, well, I, th- this happened to one of our writers, Roger. Uh, had he lost his playlists after uh, enabling Apple Music, and he had to go and get an external hard drive that was backed up with all of his playlists, and then export those files, and he went through a whole process. So, yeah, it's a headache. I remember early on in the early days of, of OS X, you know, 2002, 2003, when it was a thing that happened. You'd update iTunes, and your entire iTunes library was deleted. And Apple pulled the software update and then went ahead and reissued it. But yeah, your iTunes library was just simply gone. And if you have all your music in the cloud, that's kind of scary, too. I mean, who knows what would happen with it? You wouldn't be able to re-download it. Um, what I actually do is I have all of my music backed up to uh, iTunes Match, but then I also have Google Music and all my stuff's uploaded there too, even though I never use it, just because why not? It's free. So what I think about uh, when we're talking about cloud, we talk about cloud like it's this magical thing that's going to save all of our files and save our music and stuff like that. I, it's important to sometimes think of the cloud as simply just another hard drive on another computer that you have no control over. With hopefully better redundancy than you have. Yes, it may have better redundancy. Hopefully it does. But if something goes wrong, you have no way of doing anything with it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, who does any, I mean, everybody uses Gmail or whatever, right? Does anybody back up their emails locally or have them saved somewhere? So if Gmail went down, you'd have them all? Because I don't. I do. If, if you run Apple, if you run Apple Mail or you run some other mail client and you tell it to save everything, then yeah, you do have your backup of the mail, of the files. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't run any mail clients like that. I just access Gmail from mailbox on my phone. And, uh, and when I'm on my computer, I just use a browser. So. I do not well, care I'm, at all about my music, but I'm totally paranoid about my email. So I'm that I'm the guy. other way around. <laughs> you know, we use Gmail because running a mail server is freaking hard, right? No one right. wants to do this. No one really, no one wants to run a mail server. And having email chewing up hard disk is, is also frustrating and annoying, especially when you're the guy that bought the 2011 MacBook Air with 64 gig of, of SSD, right? <laughs> well, maybe so, you shouldn't have done that, Victor. Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Guys, just it's I, I swear it causes me to break down. It it's it's an emotional thing. But 
Let's talk about this Steve Jobs trailer. <laughs> yes, let's talk about the Steve Jobs trailer. I, uh, uh, I I thought it was all right. It wasn't the greatest trailer I've ever seen. Um, I know Shane thought it looked pretty terrible. I was more bothered by uh, Fassbender's accent. Michael Fassbender has had a problem doing an American accent in a lot of films, and it shows up again in this trailer. He's just got a kind of lilt to him that he just can't ditch. Um, but he's a good actor, and it seems like a pretty good cast and good director, good screenwriter. A trailer is a trailer. It's got to put butts in seats, but it's not necessarily representative of the final product. I'm not too worried about it. Ryan Block, who used to be the editor of Engadget, wrote exactly what I was thinking, right? Which is, I love Danny Boyle. I love Aaron Sorkin. I'm really excited to see a good movie about Steve Jobs, but this trailer just looks terrible. It just looks bad. I mean, I can't put my finger on why. It just looks bad. I wouldn't say it looked bad, but it didn't really inspire a lot of excitement in me. I, although I don't know how you could really inspire a ton of excitement for this kind of movie, right? Um, yeah. it's, it's not like the trailers for The Social Network really stood out much either, but that was a great movie. That's but I, I've complained on here in the past about Aaron Sorkin's newsroom and how terrible that show is. So this movie could either be amazing like The Social Network or it could just be a pile of steaming garbage like uh, The Newsroom. So we'll see. Or it could I, I didn't be watch the both trailer. amazing and a pile of steep and garbage, like the West Wing, Maybe. depending on which season you watch. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So I didn't watch the trailer, and here's why. I, I want a Steve Jobs movie, but I want a Steve Jobs movie that has the the passion and the the inspiring motivation that Jobs was able to to show the world. Right. That was one of the things that made him very charismatic was that he was able to talk about the future. He was able to talk about pushing the envelope. And the only way that you move forward is by pushing the envelope and rattling against these boundaries to find out where they bend and where they break to make your dent in the world. And each of these movies that's come along has had something wrong with it. And today, Wozniak said that Seth Rogen said wonderful things, but they weren't things that he would have ever said. And I, well, I expect but, every movie to deal with that. But because, that's Aaron you know, Sorkin. That's fiction. He, he, it's, he's, it's fiction. We know it. But yeah, he's not gonna he's not gonna give a historical recounting of what happened. He he wants to get the themes and ideas across. And a lot of people don't like that or just don't get it. You know, the Social Network was an entire movie based on the idea that Mark Zuckerberg was trying to get a, a girl, and Mark Zuckerberg has been married or been with the same girl for like what ten years now. Yeah. So that was a completely fictional part of that story that was created just to to try to get inside the mind of Mark Zuckerberg. Now, was that fair to Mark? Probably not, but it made for a heck of an entertaining movie. What I want is a movie where the people who knew Jobs throughout his life, at the different phases of his life, stages of his life, look at it and say, yeah, on the whole, that represents the person that I knew fairly. So what exactly does this have to do with you not watching the trailer? I'm just not ready to. <laughs> You're emotionally I'm, not prepared for it? I'm not prepared for it. You know, we and, and like Shane was talking about, we saw... We, there, there are tons of movies where you get great actors and great directors and great ingredients and the movie comes out terrible, right? You know, and, and you look at these things in hindsight and you say, how the hell did they sign on to do that? You know, but the, the example that comes to mind for me right now, and you're going to call me grandpa again, is, is the children's movie Rocky and Bullwinkle from like 15 years ago that had Robert De Niro in it. That's your example, really? <laughs> I, it, <laughs> do you want to pull out Dick Tracy? I, I, I just 
<laughs> I mean, we're we're going with children's movies. Like, I'm how, just uh, saying. How about every horrible adaptation of a novel that's ever been done? Every horrible biopic that's ever been done. Fine. You go with a Rocky and Bullwinkle live action movie. Come on. <laughs> I, I I would have it's thought Grandpa. Have gone, it's just jeez. I would have thought you'd have gone for Bill Murray as Garfield. Personally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, there you go. Holy there you moly! Go. I'm just saying. I gotta say the the Some most de- the most de- depressing uh, adaptation of a life story I ever saw was the Michael Bay produced Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Man, just uh, ruined my childhood. I, I still haven't seen that. Out of you know, respect, <laughs> why would you see it? Out of respect for myself. All right, the movie All comes right. out October 9th. Let's move on. Yes. So the iPhone has just celebrated its eighth birthday. The public launch was on June 29th, 2007, and we've had iPhones for. Eight freaking years. Now, first of all, Shane, Neil, did you guys have the original iPhone? I did. I had a four gigabyte. Uh, I was actually, uh, I worked at a newspaper at the time, made very little money. I was kind of fresh out of college and I couldn't afford a monthly data plan because they were prohibitively expensive. I was on T-Mobile. I waited until you could uh, jailbreak the iPhone. I jailbroke it, uh, connected it to the T-Mobile network with the uh, I think GPRS is what they call it. It was like sub edge speeds. There was a hack that you could do where I paid T-Mobile. I probably shouldn't be admitting this on the air, but whatever. I paid T-Mobile $5 a month for a data plan that was essentially unlimited data that was slow as molasses. But uh, it was a years-long struggle of updating the phone, losing my T-Mobile connection, having to wait to update the phone. It was a fun experience. But, yeah, it was, it was weird back then because you had to pay full price for the phone. They didn't subsidize it. But they didn't allow you to set it up in the store. You had to bring it home and connect it to iTunes so you could go into an AT&T store. And you didn't have to have an AT&T contract technically to buy it. So I had to go into the AT&T store and fib and be like, oh, I'm buying this as a gift for somebody. And then I went home and hacked it and did all that. But, yeah, I had the original. 4 gigabyte iPhone. Shane, which one did you have? I also had the original 4 gigabyte iPhone, except unlike Both Neil, unlike Neil, I was a good boy. And Upstanding I was citizen? On, I was on AT&T. I should say, you, you're, you're fine. The statute of limitations is probably long past on your crimes. But uh, yeah, I, I, bought I, it. <laughs> I bought it on launch day. I happened to be, at the time, uh, I was in another industry that is even more ridiculous than technology journalism i was in politics back then and i happened to be in dc and i drove to a sub like a maryland suburb uh to buy the phone on launch day when the phone came out one of my buddies bought it on launch day and we went to a party like the next night it came out on like a friday we went to a party saturday night and he was like a celebrity there like everybody was like you have the iphone and everybody wanted to come up and like touch the screen and see how it worked and see what it did and they were like oh my gosh and they were showing like multi-touch like zooming in on pictures and stuff people were losing their minds yeah it's almost exactly how it is with the uh, apple watch now except instead of showing it off nobody wants to see oh show me what it can do the number one right. question I get is, is it worth buying? Exactly. Yep. I don't, I, know, need this thing. I don't know what that's indicative of, whether people want it and just want to be, want to do somebody to tell them it's okay or what, but yeah, you know, there you go. I get a lot of uh, forced touch messages from my wife when she's at work and I always laugh when I get them because it's always like, oh, someone else saw her watch and she's showing them what it can do. That's the only reason she's sending me these things. <laughs> nice. I had the original 8-gig model. I didn't have to jailbreak it, although I learned Ooh, to jailbreak them later. Yeah, you know what? Go all out, right? Hey, I'm back doing then, this, doing it right. that was baller, because that was expensive as hell. 
That was nope. money. Well, they dropped the price by like two hundred bucks. Yeah, like two, two months, months later. <laughs> that was yeah. when I bought. So I, I paid like three fifty. Oh no, I paid six fifty for this thing. Well, we and we got the uh, we got the rebate though, Victor. We got the gift card. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. But I yeah. uh, I paid six fifty for it. And what I did was I have a friend who lived in Oregon at the time, and Oregon has no U.S. no no state sales tax. So he bought it tax free and then mailed it to me, and I had it two days after launch. It was brilliant. What a bunch of people skirting the law we are here. Avoiding taxes. Um, well, your skirting the law was not actually skirting the law because the Library of Congress uh, agreed that there was a valid exemption to the DMCA for jailbreaking. Yeah, I think what was worse that I did was uh, not paying T-Mobile properly for the data. The GPRS hack was was probably the, the greater sin that I committed there. But I was a, I was a poor, fresh out of college uh, newspaper reporter. So you got to do what you got to do. So the iPhone is eight. What do we think's coming in the new one, right? We were talking about things like Force Touch and Touch ID and how that shapes design. Shane, do you have a comment on that for me? I think Force Touch is probably coming. Uh, there was a hilarious report earlier today that uh, there would be a Force Touch-enabled camera app, uh, which I think is a little bit... It will probably happen now that I've thought about it for a little while, but I think it's a little bit uh, of a ridiculous application uh, for Force Touch. Uh, but yeah, I think Force Touch will happen. Um, probably not going to see a change from the 16 gig base size, even though everybody really desperately wants one, which I don't understand. I think people just want to be, people are just cheap by nature, and they want to buy the lowest one, but they can't force themselves to buy a 16 gig phone, so they want the lowest one to be higher so they can buy it. And, and people need something to complain about, too, let's yeah. be honest. Well, if, if the cloud services were there and exposed in a way that made sense when you were doing the onboarding to the thing, then you wouldn't run into the problem that you have with 16-gig device. Well, I think that's where, that's where everything is going right now. I mean, every move over the last, say, four years has been designed to push people further and further and further into Apple's cloud, with the idea being that the more you are in the cloud, the less you care about your local storage. Right, and clearly that's not working yet if people are still complaining about the 16-gig model not working for them. People aren't taking advantage of the cloud services properly in order for that to work. Well, I think that's a small, a vocal but small minority of users, right? Wasn't there a study last, sometime last year that the average number of third-party apps installed on an iPhone is four or something? Um, I, I need to see and see how many my phone currently has, but I'm not average by any yeah. slope. You've taken bets. Who, who, what, who thinks I got 300? I think you have I'm 148. Probably- well, I pared them down recently, actually. I, um, I, I went I, through last night, and I deleted 2.5 gigabytes worth of photos. No videos, just photos from my yeah. phone. So I have, at this moment, 595 <laughs> applications moly. installed on my phone. And, and how many of those do you use? Four that is of them? after Come on. I deleted many. I was Jeez. at like 800 some. And I, actually, I have I have a two home screen limit. I have my first <laughs> home screen is just apps that I use. The second home screen is three rows of apps that I use, and then three rows of folders. And then anything beyond that, I'll leave it for a week and see if I like it. If I do, it goes in a folder. If I don't, it's gone. Yeah, me too. Fantastic. I, I think this sheds some light on what my difficulty was in managing iTunes libraries. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Victor, are you a hoarder? Do you live in a pile of garbage or something in your house? I mean, geez. 
we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> I think you have a problem. I think you might, we might need to see it. Send a TLC crew to your house to make a document. Coming. Yeah. Yeah, the, I, 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 my point is that the people who comment on tech blogs and complain about 16 gigabytes of storage are not representative of the vast majority of users. Oh yeah, let's be real. What really, what people really complain about is iCloud storage. They go, "Why is it oh, yeah. saying that my iCloud storage is full?" That's well, where the real problem. Here's is here's what the real problem was in my experience: is my wife has a 16 gig iPhone 5, and she didn't want to upgrade to the six last time around. She just wasn't interested. She didn't see the point. So she has the iPhone 5, 16 gig, and she has all of her photos going back for forever. And we never turned on i. I, the photos iCloud library or whatever the product name is for that. So all of her stuff was on there and it kept adding up and there was no way to upgrade from iOS seven to iOS eight. Right. So I did the only thing that I could, which was, come on, we're a year in now. I went ahead and pulled the photos off of her phone, backed them up to the computer and then upgraded to iOS eight. And now every day without fail, she looks at me and says, where the hell are my photos? I want to send a picture to someone. Where the hell are my photos? Victor, I, ha- I have a solution for your app problem here. I can talk. I can walk you through it step by step. You open the settings app, mm-hmm. you choose iCloud, you choose family, and then you choose uh, on your wife's phone. You just choose your name, and then check the parent slash guardian thing. So she has to approve every time you want to download an app. <laughs> <laughs> problem solved. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the last thing that we have to talk about is our, our friends at Apple have lost an appeal about the uh, ebooks antitrust suit. <laughs> Why did you snicker? Why did you because snicker? this whole thing is ridiculous. Listen, I'm not the type of guy to back major corporations with, you know, uh, uh, $200 billion in cash sitting around. I'm not Says the managing editor of appleinsider.com. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, they lost this $450 million suit. Okay, that's that's just pocket change for Tim Cook. But let's be real. This antitrust suit was a joke. It was a complete and absolute joke. They claim that Apple conspired with book publishers to raise prices. Did the price of books go up? Yes. The only reason the price of books went up is because the publishers wanted them to go up because Amazon had been squeezing them. They've been lowering the prices, and they didn't have any control. And Amazon will sell stuff at a loss because they don't care. Amazon was screwing over, was literally selling their eBooks at a loss as part of right. their growth strategy. That you are, and totally so right. imagine That's that the you're third part. And then so let, let's imagine that you're a book publisher, right? And you want to sell hard copies of books at stores like Barnes & Noble because that's still a big part of your business, right? How can you possibly compete with that? How can you possibly compete with a company that's willing to lose money in order to sell their eBooks? Why would you go to Barnes & Noble and spend $25 on a hardcover when you can get the same book for 6 bucks at a loss? Why would you buy a $9 copy from Apple when you can get it for 6 bucks from Amazon? So the, the book publishers were getting screwed, so they saw Apple as an opportunity to gain some leverage. So they all agreed. And why wouldn't they agree? Of course they would agree because this was an opportunity for them to save their business model and start making a little bit of money. So what happened? The price of books went from like $6 up to $10 and then $15 for new releases. Oh man, we're going to put everybody in the poorhouse now over that, right? 
This was just a stupid, uh, it was grandstanding done by politicians and people representing politicians who were put in power so they can turn to consumers and to voters and say, look what we did for you. We're looking out for consumers. We did something for consumers. But at the end of the day, it was nothing. It was a joke. It was stupid. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think equally as painful as the $450 million is that they are stuck with Bromwich as the, uh, the, the um, monitor over the Apple trust uh, antitrust suit where he's going and requesting all of uh, things outside of they're even related to books. Now they have a guy who's looking into all their stuff, all their businesses for, for what, because they got into the ebook business. Let's not forget before Apple entered, Amazon had what 90% of the ebook business. How could, how could Apple be possibly be doing anything to hurt consumers when Amazon is the one that has a 90% share in the business? And even now, what are the figures at, right? What, what is iBooks? Is iBooks more than 20%, 25%, if that, of the book market? Really? Who's the bad guy here? The whole damn system's flawed. It's just, it's just, grand, it it's, it, it's grandstanding for them to say, oh, look, we did something for you. That's the only reason they did this. Don't be fooled into thinking it was anything else. It was just an easy target. As soon as these judgments came out and all these rulings, they were, the Justice Department was sending out press releases touting that they did this. Look at what we did. We took down big, bad Apple because Apple's the biggest company on the planet. Again, I'm not looking to go out of my way to defend Apple because certainly they have a lot of problems on their own. But this whole thing was complete hogwash. It, this is the rare, the rare time in our relationship when I completely agree with you. <laughs> I mean, look, Apple does some messed up stuff. I'm, let's not kid ourselves, right? I mean, five gigabytes of free iCloud storage. Come on, but <laughs> it's messed up, man. But there are, two, up. there are two things that they get a lot of crap for that is absurd. First is the, their treatment of their retail employees. Right? These people start at fifteen dollars an hour. Show me another massive retail operation that starts floor employees at $15 an hour, and then we can have a conversation, or $10 an hour for that matter, and then we can have a conversation. And the second is this ridiculous ebooks thing. Well, this has been the Apple Insider Podcast. I have been your host, Victor Marks, with Shane. Yep. And, and Neil. Hey, thanks for having me. Where can people find you on the internet, Neil? Uh, well, you can read my stuff at Apple Insider, and I am on Twitter at ThisIsNeil. Shane, where can people find you on the internet if they look hard enough? I am also on Apple Insider, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Shane Cole underscore, but don't follow me because I only post very boring things. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this has been the Apple Insider podcast. Please remember to leave positive views on iTunes and comments on our posts and let us know how we did. Thank you so much. 